0: You are listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Trikis Politiska Institutet. My name is Ruzbe Parsi. I'm head of the Middle East and North Africa program and I have the privilege of moderating today's panel, which is going to discuss the challenges to the post-2003 political order in Iraq, which is also, as it so happens, the title of the paper that Dr. Renat Mansour has written for us. On the domestic dynamics of Iraq, and which we will be discussing in today's session. Um, let me introduce the speakers and just how we're going to go about this. Uh, we will start with Dr. Renat Mansour, who works at Chatham House. He holds a PhD from Cambridge University, has also worked at Carnegie, and who's done extensive field work in Iraq on various aspects of what it means to live. And also what kind of politics we have in Iraq today. His presentation of the main arguments of his paper will then be followed by comments and questions firstly by al Bay who works at Folkebernad upstairs from here. Juhl Alberg has extensive experience of working in Iraq and with Iraqi organizations on conflict mediation and civil society activities. So he will bring his experience to our conversation of where Iraq is going and what the previous years have meant for the future of Iraq. And then finally, Ashal Kawati, who is an analyst at Utrikes Political Institutet, political science master holder uh, on IS and non-state violent actors. And so she will bring a perspective and a focus, perhaps, on the many different militia groups that are part and parcel of both now the social fabric, but also the political order of Iraq. Renat, the floor is yours.
2: Hello. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much for the Swedish Institute for um, inviting me. uh, and thank you for the opportunity to do this research. Um, it gave me an opportunity to not just do the typical stuff that we do, but step back and think about, you know, where Iraq has evolved since 2003. Um, and sometimes a more revisionist approach to the storytelling provides, uh, in hindsight, some lessons that I think um, I try to bring out in this paper. So. What I want to do is first talk about what is the post 2003 order. And uh, did you see how much time I have? Because that's 12 minutes, okay. I'll, I'll, I promise to be as close as possible. Yeah. Uh, to talk about what is the order, the post 2003 order, and where it's being challenged and how it's being challenged. Um, to begin, I think it's important to sort of first outline sort of that conflict in Iraq has been cyclical and it should sort of be understood along cycles. Are they can You know they usually say I have a loud voice but maybe this time Okay, is that better? Yeah, okay. Okay. Now I can, is that better? Oh, that I can hear myself better too. Yeah, this is a lot better. Okay. Um, So, conflict in Iraq is understood as being cyclical in that you have some periods since 2003 where you had pretty bad violence, whether it's 2006-7-8 or 2014-15. And then you have periods where you have so-called good governance. Stabilization, everyone gets happy, let's go home, there's democracy but it ne- we've never really gone past those cycles and so the question is why and the question i think the answer that we need to point to is what is the political order cuz the problem you know the root of the problem whether it's IS ISIS daesh or others is is not a military problem so it doesn't suffice it to just have a military oh hi, a a a, uh, a military solution so, what is the political solution needed, and that is to re-examine the political order uh, in Iraq since since 2003. So, that order, which was drawn up my, before 2003 in the 1990s, was to create a system which was based on identity politics, as we outline. And what that means is that political mobilization is necessarily based on whether you're a Shia or whether you're a Sunni or whether you're a Kurd. Political parties are based on that. What you're having now are people talking about this idea of post-sectarianism or that Iraq is moving past sectarianism and they're citing this idea that you have electoral coalitions that uh, have include inside them different groups, right? I think the biggest lesson that, has, that we've learned about that kind of order today is that perhaps identity doesn't play as big of a role as other drivers, such as economic interests or other ideological reasons or power itself. And that identity is simply the, the kind of discourse markers that, that, that are used. So, but in any case, the president is still Kurdish, the prime minister is still Shia, and the Sunni, and the speaker of parliament is still Sunni and the political parties are still based on identities. So even when, for example, in the last election in 2018, uh, the prime ministers at the time, Haider al-Abadi's Nasr coalition, only won in Mosul. The reason it won was because Khalid al-Ubaidi was a Sunni from Mosul. So political mobilization is still to some extent, at least at the institutional level, defined by these ideologies and those sort of identities which were set up. This is how the system has been set up. Um, And that's what's known as muhasasa in Iraq, the quota sharing uh, system. Now, one of the reasons why it appears, because I want to talk about why it appears like this order is breaking up, because as I'm saying to you, institutionally it's not breaking up, in the sense that the, the roles of the presidencies are still based on identities, and the political parties themselves are still based on identities. But why it looks like it's breaking up is for several reasons. Um the first is that internal rivalries are becoming big and really important. So within the big Shia bloc, right? If you look at the paper I looked at 2005, how how united the United Iraqi Alliance was, how increasingly it begins to split to the point where it's hard to, you know, it's hard to imagine if you can view two poles, Muqtada Al-Sadr on one poll and someone like Nuri al-Maliki on another poll, these are two Shi'i actors who are the biggest enemy is each other. And the same is happening across. So you have Sunnis, some of them on one side and some on the other side. You have Kurds, you know, not united, um, you know, as perhaps certain periods in the past, but of course they've not always uh, been united. So so suffice it to say that this identity-based politics is based on a system that assumes that there is some kind, A, that these groups are united, and B, that a leader from a certain group will be a better representative of that group because they share the same identity. And that's being questioned by Shi'i citizens in Basra who don't think that their Shi'i leaders have done a good job or by Kurdish citizens in Slemani or Erbil who don't think their Kurdish nationalist leaders have done a good job. So there's a questioning of that assumption that drove the identity-based system that the Americans and the Iraqi exiled elites pushed in 2003. And that's sort of where I see uh, why people begin to contest it. Now, when we talk about challenges to the order, you have two different, diametrically kind of opposed maybe, but different challenges to that post-2003 order. One of the challenges actually coming from the Xi establishment, but primarily from this group that emerged, particularly in 2014-15, and that's the popular mobilization units. The, the the known as Hajj al-Shaabi in Arabic, and I'll refer to them as a Hashid in this in this sort of talk. Now the Hashid view themselves in a second Iraqi Republic. The first Republic was 2003 until 2014, and the collapse of you know of, of the Iraqi security forces, as well as loss of one third of the territory, created this new Republic. And the Hashid are now part of the state building process. They're beginning to rebuild the state to some extent, but they're also gaining a lot of influence over the state whilst keeping a sort of outside of the state foot as well. They are using to words like anti-corruption, anti, you know, all of these words of, of, of civil society and, and even referring to themselves as civic leaders at times um, because of that. So that's one challenge to that sort of post-2003 structure. Challenge, and, and I don't use challenge in a negative way, I just say these are people, you can call them reformists, you can call them different words, but that, 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 that are rejecting the post-2003 order because they never benefited from it and now they're more powerful than before. The second is the sort of protests that have erupted. I used to say, we used to use the word protest movement, but I don't think it's a protest movement uh, as, as, as such. Really, in 2015, what happened is these protests begin to emerge, again, first in Basra, but also mainly in Baghdad, where uh, at the height and peak of ISIS and an external threat, um, the citizens said, the corrupt equals the terrorist, and that became the logo, and corruption became the problem. And so they are challenging the state, and I think fundamentally the biggest expression of that challenge came in the elections last year, not by who won, but how many didn't vote? And I think the, the voter turnout is a very clear indication that most Iraqis have basically said, this order doesn't represent us, and the institutions don't represent us. A, because they're based on identities, and B, because there's no way that we could really feel like they, they, they could represent us. And so the, the, the voter turnout was very low, and, and the assumption is that in the next provincial elections that will happen, there'll be a low voter turnout. So they're also challenging the order in, in a different way. They're saying we need a different type of democracy. We don't want elite sort of packs. And this leads to kind of, you know, when we talk to international stakeholders and internationals in, in Iraq, we talk about you know where do you want this country to go? And at the moment, although most of my talk has been negative, there is some positive signs in Iraq. One is the security situation is, is, is quite stable from Baghdad, even Basra, and other parts of the country. That's positive. And two, another big positive that I think is important, especially when I speak to my colleagues who work in other countries in the region, there is free speech. I've given talks this year in in, in Mosul, in Basra, in Ramadi, in Baghdad, and I've said what, you know, I haven't felt restrained and I'm still here. Um, So there is free speech. Now the question then becomes, is that enough for an international audience? Is that enough for stabilization? Because what you're basically describing, to some extent, is a Lebanon model. Where there's an elite pact, and unity is cherished. You know, in Iraq, if the KDP and the P.U.K. come together, unity, that's a very good thing. Doesn't matter whether they represent the people, but as long as they're united, it's stable. So is the pursuit of stability enough? Um, in so as w- it will disillusion many Iraqis or is there another way to reconceive of the post 2003 order so that it's not based on identities but it's also not based on these kind of elite packs that don't really represent uh, the people and I, and I think that's where we need to kind of conclude because if you look at some of the biggest celebrations, for example, this idea that the Iraqi government today is as technocrats. Yes, they could be technocrats, but where does power lie? Are those technocratic ministers or even the prime minister able to make decisions based on an accountable system with rules and norms and standard operating procedures? Or are there what's known as the Wikala system in Iraq and the Derajat al-Khasa, the private grades, are there proxies in each one of these ministries, in each government institutions who serve political party interests. And those interests necessarily mean usually economic interests and power interests, so that contracts go one way or another way and this kind of gets you to the point of what the state really means for Iraq and i think it's important because although they're against the order they're not against the state and in fact they support the state the state ideologically is very important the state historically has a lot of legacies but also the state is very wealthy and so most you know if you if you speak to many of the different armed groups many of the different political parties they all need to have a hand in the state because this is really where most of their revenue comes from most of their profits so Iraq is on the way to a renegotiated uh, elite pact. Um, and I've kind of kept it broad. There's a lot of specifics that I can talk about, about the Hashed or other groups, or sort of the impacts of the airstrikes recently on that kind of negotiated. Uh, but I wanted to stick to the paper for now, thanks.
1: We'll definitely have some questions to to follow up with. You will?
3: Can you hear me? Yeah. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, thanks for this uh, opportunity to read uh, and uh, comment uh, Dr. Renaud's uh, interesting uh, paper that captures, uh, in my mind, a very important uh, change and an important uh, phase of uh, modern Iraqi political history. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, I was there myself in, uh, in 2018, early 2018, and talked to several of these uh, protest leaders and also representatives of uh, Sadr. And I like uh, to link their, uh, their cause and their mobilization to uh, um, two important themes uh, that I see run through uh, modern Iraqi history. And the first uh, theme is finding a uh, formula for sovereignty. What does that mean? And that has been a consistent theme, I think, from the British mandate that began in 1920 through all the uh, four various models of power, uh, kingdom, monarchy, a Republican state, uh, both party dictatorship, and also the, uh, the, the model uh, that was created uh, in 2003 after the American invasion and occupation of um, Iraq. Yeah. And uh, uh, neither of these mentioned models have found a solution for this uh, issue, how to keep the country together. Throughout its history, uh, this, uh, the order has been uh, challenged. Another theme uh, from both the internal actors and the external actors. Another theme uh, that stands out is what uh, principles of, uh, of the, uh, should this so, uh, rise to sovereignty rise on? And there, there have been different models of, of uh, a power struggle and a struggle and different ideas on uh, how this uh, should uh, be uh, done. And I think the interesting uh, thing that happened when these demonstrations uh, began and the alignment with a Shia religious national figure such as uh, uh, Muqtada Sadr is that it, uh, they rallied under the Iraqi flag They called for a uh, Iraqi independence, uh, the principle of uh, non-interference, and uh, I would say that uh, Iraqi, uh, the Muqtada Sadr, the Shia religious cleric, represents a Iraqi distinctiveness in the. Shia uh, sphere that uh, he wants to evoke the uh, Iraqi character of his uh, of his uh, creed, and that makes him uh, partly different from other Shia actors in uh, Iraq. The other point I would like to raise, and that uh, um, Dr. Renaud's paper made me uh, reflect upon was the uh, volatility of the territorial issue in uh, in Iraq and many other Middle Eastern countries. Here in Europe uh, we have seen that war has been the midwife uh, of territories, uh, of nations and then states. That has been the order of things and this uh, is a process that can take hundreds of years In Iraq and in many other uh, Middle Eastern countries, the war and the plague of war and the curse of war has come after the nation was uh, created and when it became independent. And there are multiple examples uh, of that, the war against Iran, the invasion of uh, Kuwait, uh, the proclamation of a caliphate in uh, I- I- Iraq, the Kurdish uh, struggle for uh, freedom and autonomy, are all of the uh, examples that lie as a residue in ir- current Iraqi uh, affairs. That uh, and this also applies to internal borders; that there is a problem uh, of uh, delineation, etc. Which has been a uh, a theme. So, uh, in summary, I interpret the way uh, the the protest movement and uh, the uh, the um, ideas and thoughts of uh, Sader as as part of the Iraqi theme of trying to find out uh, what does it mean uh, to be uh, Iraq and what does it mean to be Iraqi and on what principles uh, should uh, rule be um, established.
0: So can you hear me? It's nice to be with you and to discuss this paper, very nice paper of Dr. Renard Mansour and I think what I found found particularly interesting in this paper especially with in relation to what you said what it means to be an Iraqi are the hashed. Um as you may know they they have gained a lot of attention recently and uh, particularly since since the defeat of Islamic state and not and today they are they can be seen as you can say the biggest, the largest non-state actor within Iraq. And although they are part of this narrative of um, granting victory to the Iraqi state, there are also a lot of challenges um, with the Hashid. and as Dr. Renard Mansour highlights in his paper. And they are also seen and described in media, particularly Western media, as the, these... Iran-aligned militias and uh, proxies. And, you know, m- some of them are. Um, but what I found interesting with the Hashid and also other non-state actors uh, within I- Iraq are that they are so, in a way, symbol. they are a symbol of the emergence of the Iraqi state post-2003. And with that, there are a lot of challenges. And I suppose what I would want you to perhaps um, evolve here is to describe the, you know, I mean, the emergence of the Hashid are on the one hand seen as after the Sistani fatwa, but on the other hand is something that, you know, predates post-2000, I mean, before the fall of Saddam. And even though they are seen as a non-state actors, they are not. I mean, they are a part of the state, and a, but at the same time, um, ag- not against the state, but work weakening the state. And, and as I said, poses a lot of challenges, particularly when it comes to recon- um, reconciliation, reconstruction, security sector reform, and, well, I suppose that's all I have to say right now.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Um, So there are several things that the three of you have brought up, and and I'm going to, if you will, give you a couple of questions, and I know Renard now has some things to to respond to from the other panelists. Uh, One here, of course, which is also very clear in the paper, is governance, the notion of governance and whether governance can be achieved from above or whether it needs to be grown from below. Uh, And there, perhaps, uh, even going beyond the conceptual problems of civil society and what it is and what is not, you you could imagine that any kind of civil society activity would be either just a pressure on the state to be better at governance or could actually fulfill the function itself, which again goes back to the idea of was there ever a state in Iraq or anywhere else that had a monopoly of violence or not, etc. That is That is, what are the functions of the state? When we say the Iraqi state and we say that everyone is dependent on the Iraqi state, do we only mean that in the sense of the Iraqi state has money and, therefore, everyone needs to be connected to it? But rather, it would seem from these protest movements that people expect more from the state than just, say, simple patronage. They expect service. So then the question becomes if civil society organizations can fulfill the things that the state is not able to do. And whether the state would allow that, in a sense opening up a free market, or whether it would consider it a threat. Which is the usual Middle Eastern uh, reaction to when people want to do things on their own is to conceive conceive of them as a threat to the state's uh, privilege of doing those things. So that's one issue. The other issue is reintegration. So in the sense of politics, we're discussing here now whether people are being, not perhaps reintegration is too much, but integrated into a political order that is not just based on their supposed identity. But is there also a geographical element to that? If you look at the tables that you brought out in the paper, for instance, we can see that when it comes to, uh, let's say, being pessimistic about what the state can do for you and being um, optimistic about what your own group should do, the North is often the outlier. Right? They are more skeptical, if you will, of what's happening. And they're less optimistic about what could happen. <laughs> so is there also a problem of integration geographically? And I'm thinking beyond you know, the Kurds versus the rest, but in general. And then finally, uh, these are all big things, so I don't, you know, we're not gonna answer all of them, but at least we can try and tease them out a bit. You mentioned, and Ashi mentioned as well, and in a sense what Yuel is discussing in terms of uh, territorial uh, stability and sovereignty, is what relations does Iraq have with outside powers? And to what extent are these outside powers now part of domestic Iraqi politics rather than just a foreign policy issue? And here, of course, everyone is thinking about Iran, primarily. So the question would be, how has the seesaw between U.S.-Iranian influence changed? And considering the reports of the last couple of weeks, will a potential more or less direct confrontation between Israel and Iran on Iraqi territory complicate things that you are discussing in the paper? I know the answer is yes, but how is the interesting thing.
2: Thank you. All right, I'll try and answer all these massive questions um, that are several PhDs each uh, in, in a few minutes. Um, so, I think on the question of what is the Hashid, uh, I think it's an important question um, because very clearly what you have is a Hashid, which was the Hashid that was fighting uh, against Daesh. And this Hashid is a loose umbrella organization of many different groups, no centralized command structure, but some kind of idea that there is this uh, commission. Now, of course, after the fight against Daesh, people begin to question, what is the role of the Hashid? Just like I remember in in Lebanon, they questioned after Israel left, what was the role of Hezbollah? And so Abu Mehdi al-Muhandis, who is the de facto leader of the Hashid, is now having to consolidate power and to centralize the Hashid into what it will become. I think their vision is to become some form of a national guard, but it needs to be centralized. He cannot have a Shabak group you know, stopping the road because they're unhappy, or a Christian group, or this other Shia group. So his role right now is to use, to some extent, the state, and to become a state actor also, to be able to control these groups. But obviously, as you say, and I think this is important, they are neither a completely a state actor nor a non-state actor. I guess one of the fashionable words to use is hybrid actor, in that, they, you know, And this is not new, look at the Badr organization in 2004 when they're moving to the Ministry of Interior. Badr continued to exist in the state, but also outside of the state. So this is something that's been happening in Iraq for some time, but there's something important in all of this and it links to the recent airstrikes. There is a kind of understanding between Abu Mahdi and let's say the formal Iraqi leadership that he won't interfere in foreign affairs, He'll do this military stuff on the ground. The Hashid will continue to fight Daesh and, and, and do the what you know what they do economically and everything else. However, the foreign leadership is the one that needs to deal with countries like America, Israel, other countries. Now, if they're unable to stop or to convince the Americans to not hit them like they have been, then we will then Abu Mehdi will have to rethink that strategic relationship. And I think the letter that Abu Mehdi sent last week condemning uh, the Israelis and and Americans, or foreigners, is a clear sort of show that he's unhappy with the formal leadership in Iraq. And I think the formal leadership is reacting, whether it's the president or the prime minister, being stuck between Americans who are sort of hawkish in their attacks, and their allies, and the Hashid and Abu is basically saying, Your role, your responsibility is to make sure that my depots don't get hit or my weapons or my men aren't killed. So there's a negotiation right now happening, um, but the hashid is in in, in it. And it's important to understand the hashid as well as not a military organization only or not even an organization, but more as a network, maybe perhaps. It's a social network, it's a family network, but it's also economic networks. You look at the money and and, and the businesses, and, and a political, obviously a political network. They're very powerful in, in the parliament, um, as well as in the executive. Their electoral block is one of the two main political blocks in the country. They're responsible for bringing the prime minister to power. I mean, they're quite influential politically. If you look at even Mosul, for example, the current governor of Mosul is, has been chosen by Al Fayyad and others who are close to the Hashid. So they're, I mean, they, they have many levers across the state. So I suppose, because they'll never be recognized as a state, they have to play this role as insurance policies to kind of try and take parts of the state, but also ensure parallel structures. Um, on the question of governance uh, and and this sort of Weberian underpinning. Uh, Yes, I think integration will never work. Um, I don't think integration has ever worked, not only in Iraq, but anywhere in the Middle East. You don't really have monopoly over legitimate violence. Um, and in many parts of the Middle East, governance can be applied, you know, come from not just the state actors. I think Iraq is a bit different. I think, as you say, the history, the historical legacies of statehood are very strong in Iraq. Um, and, and people have some value for the state, and even the hashid. I mean from their inception as a a commission in 2014, it was very important that they not be called militias. A, because militias are constitutionally prohibited, but B, because there's kind of, you look down upon for being a militia. But warlords in other countries don't care what they're called, but the Hashid did. The Hashid had to become a state actor, and it's part of their legitimization process. And one of the biggest criticisms that they hate to hear is that they're either capturing the state or not a state state actor. on the, on the issue of political order and skepticism, skepticism over geography, I think that goes, so for example, the highest voter turnout in last election was in Mosul, right? Um, where the only place where the incumbency won. So the, be, the people in Mosul were happier with the political process, or some of them were forced to vote, but you know, in general, anyone who went to Mosul after liberation saw how happy many of the people were just be done with Daesh. Then let's say in Basra, where most people say the voter turnout would be somewhere between 15 to 20 percent, or in Kurdistan in Slemaniya, for example, people are more disillusioned in in and versus in Erbil and Duhok, where the patronage networks are stronger, so that the KDP can still be a very strong party. So I think the geography thing—I don't know. Like I spent I spent quite a bit of time across Iraq, and I hear many very similar sort of criticisms. They're all corrupt, they're all criminals, they're all, you know, you just take out the word Shia and put Sunni, take out the word Kurd, put Arab. The criticism is fundamentally the same. And that's why I think the problem needs to be redefined away from, it's not an ethno-sectarian problem, uh, because since 2003, a lot of Shia, a lot of Sunnis, and a lot of Kurds, leaders, have become very wealthy. But it's a a problem between the sort of the elite, the leadership class, and then the citizens. Um, and that's beyond identities, And that's, I think, what people would mean when they talk about beyond identities. And finally, very briefly, because I talked a lot, on, on U.S.-Iran, I mean, the answer is very clearly, if you look at American influence, for example, in the first period of good governance or post-conflict, which was 2008, you had General Petraeus there, working with Maliki, as Maliki consolidated the Shia militias by attacking the Geish and The Americans were on the ground, even their non-essential staff were still there, uh, and they were part of the process, and they were influencing, they were choosing, and they were working with the Iranians, even though they won't admit it, and often had similar interests. So in 2010, they both wanted Maliki to remain as prime minister, both the Iranians and the Americans. They've often been on the same page in Iraq, but neither side will, will, will admit it, and they get upset if you even bring it up. Today, we're in a similar period, the Americans have evacuated their non-essential staff. They don't have as many assets. They, 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 they don't have any control over the prime minister's office as they used to have in that period of time. And instead, the Iranians are there. So you, you mentioned seesaw. I think very clearly uh, Iran is a, a stronger foreign power. Now, to some extent, when you bring this up, a lot of the groups, even Masoud Barzani, said Iran was the first to defend when Daesh was on the uh, the, the, the steps of Erbil. But many people view Iran as, you can trust Iran. You know, there was an, a politician told me, I think Iraqis have learned that if you want to become a successful politician in Iraq, you can. You need to, if you have to choose between Iran and the US, it's a no-brainer, you choose Iran. They'll secure you. And I think Haider abadi learned the other way, that if you get too close to the Americans, you lose your position.
1: Yeah. The question was, uh, let's let's take the one on governance because of your experience uh, in Iraq. I mean, what would you say about the idea of governance from below versus governance from above? Because, I mean, usually what happens when you get aid or help from uh, a foreign country It's usually channeled, whether you like it or not, some way through a state apparatus.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So th- in today's Iraq, how should one go about trying to help Achieve better governance. Is it still the state because there is no choice, or what, what are the options?
3: If a uh, look in the Iraqi national budget, about uh, 90% of it goes to uh, running costs uh, and paying uh, the paying salaries. About 3.5 million civil servants. About more than 600,000 of the belong to the security uh, service. One problem with the Iraqi budget is that it overspends on security and underspends on uh, on areas that can create conditions for long-term development. Iraq spends about 9% uh, of its uh, annual budget on uh, education, if you compare it to Saudi Arabia, it's 25%. Uh, Algeria, uh, it's also around, it's 20%. Uh, percent. And that is, uh, so it has also become a devel- development uh, problem in that uh, all since long, uh, 2003, and if we take that as a stop today, until to this day, it has been so uh, drawn in to, uh, to uh, short term uh, uh, problems and crisis and uh, that uh, and offers uh, very little room uh, both in the budget and in terms of spending to go um, uh, forward with a long term uh, uh, view so that's my take on it that uh, how can uh, go from short term uh, consumption to long-term investment in health, in education, and in infrastructure in order to create conditions for um, cooperating on these uh, resources rather than uh, competing uh, on them. Uh, And uh, just uh, to see another example in the government spending that the Iraqi government spends more on uh, uh, religious endowments uh, uh, to the different religious group, than it spends on housing and uh, construction. And that that creates a um, a sort of uh, huge uh, development uh, problems. Uh, Iraq uh, was before the third largest uh, exporter of oil in the world. It's the only country in the world that does not have a national oil legislation uh, and it does not have uh, a, a sovereign fund like all other uh, exporters of oil have, uh, where money is uh, from oil exports is saved in order to be spent for uh, future uh, uh, generations. And uh, so this is, uh, I think, a huge uh, uh, problem uh, uh, And for this government in order to deliver uh, services.
1: But that, of course, begs the question, when you come from the outside and you're trying, in a sense, to help the people, the country, the government, How does one go about doing that in a country that has these kind of governance problems and these kind of corruption problems? Because that is what these ground up protest movements are pointing to. How does one get around this issue?
3: Uh, Well, that's a uh, tough uh, question, of course. Uh, it's. I think uh, a uh, couple of years ago before the 2018 uh, uh, elections, at least my take on the present system, it was beyond the reform uh, that even uh, assisting and uh, would do actually legitimizing this uh, the complete failure uh, in, uh, in the setup, uh, in the sectarian division, uh, uh, decision making. Um, so, so that's uh, one part of it. But the other part of it that many Iraqis say uh, today that uh, they have uh, suffered enormously uh, and fought enormously a, a war uh, on, on a terrorist organization. Uh, And the same pattern repeats that countries uh, get involved uh, as long as uh, security interests are uh, are related. But um, so, and there is an underspending uh, on the uh, the human capital now, uh, where, uh, and that uh, creates um, also potential uh, conflict in the beginning. So uh, my position, I would say that, well, uh, Iraqi uh, government needs uh, to take this uh, corruption issue that is endemic and systematic uh, in in order to be a credible partner and uh, to other international uh, organizations. Uh, How it's done, well, God knows. (laughs)
1: Um, well, I mean, I'm being stubborn now, but, but so le- let me turn what I asked you to you and also to something you remarked on yourself. So the 2018 elections, are they in any sense uh, enough of a change to warrant more optimism for what can be done? Were the results and the way they were conducted something that tells us that there is still hope for this system or is it beyond repair?
0: Um, well, short answer, yes and no, because you could for the first time see, since 2004, cross-sectarian alliances. And that that is an improvement in itself, obviously. Um, I mean, you could see Sadr with communists and Shias with Sunnis, but... This, I mean the muhasasa system, and I hear I think Renard can go a bit deeper. I think it will still be a very fundamental part of Iraqi politics, and it's not corruption could be could exist even without the muhasasa system. It's just that in Iraq it has been like this tool for for um, well making it easier. So yes and no. But I think, I mean, with the protest movements and although I'm also very, you know, skeptical to the, you know, to the everlasting changes, but I still think that we have, I mean, the society is also, I mean, we have a generation shift in Iraq, 60% of the people are under 30 and are perhaps tired of this old elite pacts. And these are the people that, won't have, I mean, that doesn't, that protest because there are lack of jobs, there are lack of electricity, etc. And I think if those people can perhaps build alliances with each other, I mean perhaps in the form of civil society, and we have seen that in Baghdad, for instance, things are changing and we are moving from the sectarian notion, but I think it will take time. And now I think it's time for my colleague to go deeper in this issue. Um,
2: so I think celebrating cross-sectarianism, I mean, obviously it's a good thing, but the risk is the same risk that the UN and others have had with recon- the notion of reconciliation in Iraq. And that is, if you bring a Sunni, a Shia, and a Kurdish leader together, have them united, Does that solve the problem of corruption? Does that solve the issues that the Iraqis that you're talking about protesting in the street have? And actually, sometimes it makes it worse because now the leaders are together, like in Lebanon, right? Um, So is this something that we should be pushing or or celebrating when it happens? Or should we look more, again, as I say, vertically um, and, and, and try and see how to get that? The only good thing about it, which is, I think, sort of a positive, I mean there's several positive things, sorry, but one of the main positive things is at least now the leaders can no longer use sectarianism in discourse and so they have to talk, at least make you know say things like reform or corruption, they need to make it. And that the street feels that the only way to have a voice is not through elections, but through either protesting or even through other ways. Like for example, a lot of the youth are using techno technology as a way to have a voice partly because the adults don't understand it, so it gives them a space to uh, to do. But there's a lot of fintech companies. And you know, in, in Baghdad, for example, there's cooperatives, this thing called the station. Cooperative, different companies can come and have offices. So there is a community emerging, and you can have similar things in Erbil as well. There's a lot of this kind of youth movement coming to, to sort of say, we're tired of these same leaders, really the same parties and leaders, uh, governing since 2003 and not really is doing the things that you talk about in terms of governance and so there is hope in that they ha- they they still feel that they have hope but they don't feel they have hope vis-a-vis the system that that the Americans and the Iraqi elites gave them in 2003 um and you know on the issue of corruption it, i mean the the fact that October 2003, there was a, a donors conference, and 30, 40, 50 billion was pledged to help Iraq. Iraq needs a lot of money. It's not a very wealthy country. Um, that's, that's supposed to be uh, iron, ironic. Um, but then again, last year, the EU organized another donor right conference in Kuwait, where another, I think, 33 uh, was pledged. None of, and none of this money actually goes to what it's used for. As one minister recently described to me, out of a budget, a quarter of it goes to ghosts who don't come into work. A quarter of it goes to political parties vis a vis proxies who you have to pay. A quarter of it goes to destruction of the facilities that you have to fix and building things and redoing. And then only a quarter goes to doing what you want to do with the money. And I think even that is a bit ambitious. But so far, so therefore, this entire ministry, and this is across ministries and government agencies, they're just unable to. Iraq isn't a problem of money. It's not a problem of donations. It's a corruption problem, as, as has been explained. And so as an international actor, sometimes feeding into that system could actually have more backlash than do good.
1: So basically more tough love of some kind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, I want to get back a bit to the whole non-state actor thing. Um, So, I mean, I'm just, you know, this is what the Americans call a curveball. This is coming out of the blue on the left field. Um, But these uh, different paramilitary militias, whatever you want to call them, uh, let's tease out a bit the conceptual aspect of it. What are they? But more importantly also perhaps to what extent do they go beyond the borders of a state and in particular this case of Iraq? I mean, to what extent can we see that this is not just a question of infringing or integrating or overtaking the Iraqi state, but also territorially, where do they go? Is there a development there, or is it basically just that they have their own little turf, their own little checkpoint, and that's all they do, but that is, sort of speak, enough for them?
0: Well, to answer your first question, I mean, the Hashid are not monolithic, so it's not one one group. They are various groups, perhaps 50, 50 of them. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Renard. Um, and s- most of them emerged out of 2014. Uh, but some of them, and the most powerful ones, have existed for quite some time, and uh, since even before two, 2003. Uh, but also after 2003, and, um, but what happened after this mobilization, I mean, the most powerful ones are the ones that are supposedly, or are Iran-aligned, but they are also different, it's not just Shia militias, there are Sunni ones, Sunni factions, and Christians, and Yazidi ones as well, and they, they sometimes work with each other. Some The smaller ones can get more advantages if they work with the bigger ones, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, But what's happening now is in 2016, I believe, as you explained before, um, they were legitimized, uh, but as an independent um, entity under the prime minister's office. Um, but the problem with them, I mean, there are a lot of problems and challenges, but one is that, well, they are not entirely integrated into the Iraqi army. It, and it's seen, it is seen as a problem by many, because we have this notion of what is a state, and the state has monopoly of violence. Um, another problem is that, well, some of them are um, proxies, or have a close relationship with other states. And uh, so there, there's this regional dimension but, and this has also, I mean, this is something we have seen in the light of the recent escalations between Iran and United States, but also Iran and Israel, or Iran and Saudi Arabia, and the Hashid plays, or some of them, plays a part in it, but, you know, you cannot, I mean, it's not really black and white when you describe the Hashid. some of them are bad, some of them not so, they are a lot of, and they they, they are not the only non-state actors in Iraq, I mean, there are a lot of Military units or paramilitary groups, or whatever you want to call them. Um, maybe you want to, this is your turf, so maybe you want to chip in and develop what I've just said.
2: No, I mean, <laughs> I'll, just add, I'll just add something. Uh, that, and this, I agree with you, and, and I think it's an important point that the Hashid is not the only, or the groups of the Hashid, let's say, aren't the only actor that's a political party. That has a military, that has an economic wing, that has that and hasn't integrated. In fact, some of those actors were supported by the international community during the fight against Aesh, right? So Iraq has a bigger problem, which is none of these actors are accountable. So the word that I think is important to use isn't integration, because that doesn't have but accountability. And the same things that are often accused of the hashid can be accused of the KDP and PUK Peshmerga. That they're not integrating that they're loyal more to political parties than the KRG, that they have economic, sort of official and unofficial economic practices, and at times that they dissent protests. They they stop, they suppress protests, right? So, and the Hashid sees this. And when the Hashid sees this, they say, why does everyone think the Kurds are good and the Shia are bad? Or why does the US think that the Sunnis are good and they funded this, the tribes in the Sahwat? but they think we're bad. What is the state versus non-state thing, right? So I think the conversation needs to move forward, A, by realizing that you're gonna have these hybrid type of actors, but how do you make sure that those actors are accountable to the rule of law and the institutions rather than to political parties? Um, Sadly, it's a politicized environment, so some of them will still be good and some of them will still be bad.
0: And if I just may, I mean, many, I mean, they are also, at least, a lot of the groups are popular in Iraqi society because they are not only, as you said, a military group, they're also a social movement and have other functions beyond just warfare or men with guns. <laughs>
1: I mean, the, the, the parallel there, of course, would be to Hezbollah, which is an organization that has, if you will, succeeded quite well in going beyond just being a guerrilla group, being a political party, being part of the state, having economic interests, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, in their case, you could say that they've had decades of building also a kind of a, a popular base, which f- more or less sticks with them regardless of how successful or not they are and what kind of repercussions their actions have on society. Um, so the, we'll see whether you know the Iraqi equivalents have that ability and, and whether the state is fragmented enough for them to be able to carve out that space. But that brings me to another issue, which is often, as I think Ashi mentioned, often when we're talking about actually both Lebanon but Iraq, people tend to say that these are, a lot of these groups are proxies for Iran. Uh, and... Conceptually, I find that a bit problematic because it tends to give the impression that it means that someone in Tehran picks up a phone and then someone in Basra or Baghdad just does something. And I think that's probably making it too simple, but so I will ask the panel, in a sense, you know, what does that mean? What is the, the if you will, the, on an almost technical level, what is the practical meaning? of the relationship between Iran and some of these groups? What does that actually look like? Um,
3: My impression is that uh, uh, some um, militias uh, are uh, very close to Iran. Uh, They are trained by uh, Iranian uh, security uh, Forces, they have lived, its leadership has lived uh, many years during the Saddam uh, years uh, in uh, Iran. Uh, they are uh, also part of uh, Iranian political ambitions of uh, finding an, uh, a corridor, using Iraq as a corridor, uh, through Syria and uh, reaching Hezbollah in uh, uh, Lebanon uh, and uh, they are uh, the prol- proliferation of, of these uh, different uh, groups is a um, it, it's something quite typical what is happening to large parts of the uh, Middle East where inofficial groups and uh, sort of, hybrid groups are becoming stronger uh, than uh, the states. Uh, and these groups can look uh, quite different and have uh, different ideology. But the point is that uh, the state's uh, power and, uh, uh, and legitimacy is in serious, serious uh, threat and very weak. Uh, um, so one uh, leader, uh, Hadi el in Iraq, he said in uh, 2016, uh, went public and say that, well, we are stronger uh, than uh, the state. And there is uh, much reason to believe that uh, he was uh, right. Um, And I think uh, the the inclusion of the different militias uh, into the Iraqi army uh, was a great uh, mistake. Uh, that uh, was uh, part, uh, conditions forced them to, uh, to do it, uh, because who knows what they would do otherwise. Uh, 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 before, when these militias uh, were uh, marauding in Basra, uh, they completely controlled uh, the um, the town, and uh, even if the Maliki first Maliki government at that time would offered a, uh, they would have a uh, inclusion, they would have uh, uh, rejected. Um, And just to clarify the point, uh, I think it's a mistake uh, because it's not a national uh, um, uh, militia. They they carry uh, religious symbols, and these religious symbols have been uh, used, uh, and so it creates this kind of confusion between a state actor and uh, a religious actor. And that's why uh, Abadi, when he opened the campaign to retake uh, Mosul, Uh, He went on public, uh, the former prime minister, to say that these uh, militias uh, will not enter uh, um, uh, Mosul. And that shows uh, then that was a wise uh, decision. But then uh, they were forced, Abadi was forced to take on these uh, militias uh, because they were stronger, essentially, uh, than uh, the uh, state.
2: Um, I think it's an important point. Um, It's like you have degrees of proxiness, um, and and to some extent, some of these actors will transform as well. They're constantly transforming themselves. Um, So someone like Hadi Al-Amri, who, you know, in the 1980s, was literally fighting for Iran, right, as part of the better organization fighting against Iraq, Uh, and then into 2000s, he, becomes, he goes to Iraq and really is close in that proxy. But eventually, I think the thesis is, if you want to become a state actor in Iraq, you need to, to some extent, play to the national card. And if you play the national card, Iraqis do not want to have a leader who is a proxy of Iran. I mean, these are two different countries. Um, and so Muqtada al-Sadr realized this in the early 2000s. Hadi al-Amri realized this. And that's why last year he went against Iran's wishes um, when he create, tried to create an alliance with Muqtada Sadr's group right after the election and that was put down and he was kind of sidelined after that to some extent. But also people like Qais al Ali and others realize to some extent they can't just take w- orders from Iran, but then it becomes to what extent are they, can they reinterpret it? Or kind of play with the strategy, but with different tactics. So you have these kind of groups. And then you have other groups like uh, Nujaba and other sort of Kitab Hezbollah that are very much more the traditional proxies, which is, do I attack the US today? Let me find out what Qasem Soleimani uh, would like to happen. So I think it's, it's a wide array, but I think the variable is to what extent do they want to become a political actor in Iraq that affects it?
0: Yes, I agree, but I do think, I mean, they are proxies when it benefits them. When it benefits them economically, for instance, and you know, they—I mean, Iraq shares a border with Iran, so it's convenient for some of them to work with parts of the RCG. But it depends, I suppose, because they are, as I mentioned, and all of us, they are not monolithic, and neither is the relationship with the with the the with Iran, for instance, so or with each other. And I suppose it also depends on which leader. Of the hashed who is in control, or who has this relationship with some somebody from the RCG, and you know, beyond ide- ideology, I do think the economic factor plays a big role here, and and the war economy, as you've written on about.
1: Is there anything that we haven't covered, or that you would like to delve into? hobby horses we've missed.
3: Yeah, uh, there's one thing that hasn't been uh, covered uh, which is also a big problem and that is uh, throughout the years uh, that I've been traveling to Iraq that began in 2010, I've seen a gradual decrease in the political and social influence of the Sunni community and they uh, have also been struck uh, very hard uh, of course uh, in uh, uh, of ISIS infiltration and and I, and I think this is also a issue that needs to uh, to be addressed that the Iraqi leaders need to be um, addressing And I think the former prime minister uh, was quite uh, clear about that, that uh, he he addressed uh, Iraqis as Iraqis, uh, uh, regardless of of, uh, sect, and he took measures not to uh, confuse religion and state in military operations, uh, and tried, but now I, I feel that it's a bit, that it's going uh, down. Uh, so that's a, uh, and I, I think it's a diff, uh, very important uh, question.
2: I agree, uh, I mean obviously a lot of the Sunnis were directly targeted um, through debathification and, and Maliki's, you know, getting rid of people like Tariq al-Hashmi and, and Rafa al-Isawi, and his re- repression of the haraka al for example, in Mosul from 2010, 11, 12, had a big impact to the rise of Daesh. Um, but yeah, I think what, what you're, what's interesting is that the, the same kind of movements of protests were, have been a bit slower but in, in Sunni areas, but that's because they had such dire security needs. I think today, the Sunni predicament is going to mimic the predicament that the Kurds have and that the shi'a have. I think the problem with the Sunnis as well is, um, not the problem, but one of the issues, let's say, is they don't, they lack political parties. Um, they lack really strong, charismatic leaders as, as such. They don't, I mean, I think there's, I mean, they, whether it's Halbusi or Khamis al-Hanjar, there isn't a, a leader. Um, but I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because I still find it awkward to talk about a Sunni community uh, as such outside of uh, sort of the political system.
1: OK, before we move to the QA, a very, very small question, and that was ironically meant. What will the eventual passing of Ayatollah Sistani mean for the domestic politics of Iraq? Will it mean anything? Will it have any effect? Or is the idea of religious authority in politics something of the past?
2: Um, Very briefly, it's a good question. Um, So, Ayatollah Ali Sistani comes from Ali Sistani comes from the what's known as the quietist school, uh, which means that uh, to not interfere politically. But he's been Far from quiet, of course. Since 2003, um, based primarily of, out of need, I think people would say. I think there was a vision that after 2003 and the kind of collapse of most of the state, that the people needed something to rally around, and the Marja'iya could serve that, um, and to act as a guiding light uh, to some extent at different times of crisis. So, if it's 2014. Um, issuing a fatwa to mobilize fighters. These are all the reasons why people would say that Sistani has had a positive role um, in Iraq. I think what's most important about Sistani and the Marja'iyah is the discourse that they've adopted um, that's very Iraqi nationalists. So although he's a Shi'i leader, he's also an Iraqi nationalist leader, just like the, the patriarch, the uh, Cardinal Taco, is a Christian leader, but also a national leader. And so they try not to focus anymore on the kind of one side. I think there have been issues, and I think some would argue that Sistani and the Marja'iya is a kind of a hard shell in that they're under tremendous pressure from Iran and other groups, and they don't actually have as much power outside of mobilization, and oftentimes what they want doesn't happen exactly the way they want it. They didn't want these volunteers to join the militias, they wanted them to join the Iraqi security forces. I'm sure he didn't want the Shia to vote for Shi' Islamist parties when he issued his calls in 2004 and five but using words like minority and majority led to sectarianism. Um, so that's off, So we'll see what happens. Um, but I, I would suspect that most people who do work on this, I don't work on this, would say that the quietest school um, would prevail. Well, the not so quiet school.
3: Can uh, add on that, uh, I think a, m- a major uh, issue that uh, the uh, Iraqi hausam, which is the name of the Shia uh, informal religious uh, teaching that goes on in Najaf and, and Karbala, is also in this kind of identity search uh, of uh, uh, how shall we engage in politics or first should we and, and what are the limits and uh, where are uh, the lines. Definitely they are. Uh, Uh, Many of them are extremely critical of uh, uh, Iranian clerics and uh, meddling in uh, uh, Iraqi um, affairs Uh, and uh, part of the popularity of Sadr comes uh, uh, from that um, uh, movement and sentiment. so i, I think and uh, the importance of it will certainly uh, remain because uh, uh, no uh, it is a conservative society uh, where uh, uh, groups uh, mean a lot uh, and also uh, religious uh, identity um.
1: I think, I mean, if you look at it historically, both in Iran and in Iraq, the quietest school has been the dominant one. But the problem with being quiet, of course, is that people forget that you are there. Now, uh, let's take some questions from the audience. Um, please raise your hand, introduce yourself, and ask one brief question. Let's begin over there. Hello. Uh, My name is Gunnar Andersson. I work for the Swedish Association of Local Authorities. We work in Muthana, Diwania and Duhok with local governance development, uh, our local office in Diwania. I want to throw in the issue of decentralization. We're speaking about building from below and for me building from below is not only about building society and then community but also local governance structure and there is a decentralization process ongoing in Iraq it's On and off, it's asymmetric, it's a mixed system, but it's happening. Um, yeah, what's your view on that? Uh, is it good or bad or something else? Up yep. a couple of more questions. Uh, there was someone here, yes,
4: Marianne Lanatza from Lund University. Um, the, the question about um, the economy and uh, reforms and as a matter of fact, when the Americans did the invasion in 2003, they um, uh, abolished all tariffs and everything. So the inflow and the completely dominance of Iranian products of uh, different qualities is a big problem for those who would like to start up to produce something in Iraq. It's really a big handicap. And also, by the way, all the Ayatollah families in Iran are... In Iraq, are actually Persian, uh, Iranian, uh, uh, comes from Iranian families. So when you speak about Iraqis, Ayatollahs, it's, yeah, you could put a question mark. Thank you.
1: I'm going to let you answer these, but of course, do remember that the whole point of these uh, uh, clerical families is that they didn't know nor do they understand borders. That's a very modern concept in and of itself. I think it's actually more important for Sistani that he's a Najafi when it comes to his religious inclinations. And those who are in Qom don't like Najafis and vice versa, rather than the border of the country itself.
2: On the question of decentralization, I mean, this is something that has been tried. There was, there's been a few assumptions with decentralization or federalism. One that the local is able and capable to do the work, um, and that was never really pushed. You know, it was just assumed. And two, that the local will also better represent, you know, in terms of reach out because they're physically closer. And I think both of those assumptions are being questioned. Um, and so. You know, in a rentier state like Iraq as well, there needs to be some relationship between the center and the periphery, um, given that oil is such a big part of, of, of the revenue. Uh, but I think those are the main two reasons why decentralization federalism hasn't really worked um, in, in these areas. What you have are like some of the extremities, which is people in Basra now want to become a region because they're so fed up, um, or a relationship between KRG and Baghdad, which is almost you know not like two pe- groups in the same country, but quite antagonistic at times. And yeah, on the issue of the economy, it's a very good point. I mean, recently there was a video of Kurdish farmers throwing their tomatoes and destroying their own tomatoes because they're just so fed up with imports coming from Iran, from Turkey. I mean, the fact that I was in Baghdad a few weeks ago, uh, and you know, I had the, you know mazguf, this dish, and some they eat it with uh, dates after, and I asked where the dates came from, and the dates came from Iran, and this is a country with Basra. Basra is famous for dates. They had to take the trees from Basra to plant them elsewhere. And now those dates are coming in because Iraq isn't able to produce a lot of it. And so how can the economy improve if some of these very simple sort of agricultural institutions are crippled? And on the ayatollah, I think there's also, I think your point is right, there's many Iraqi ayatollahs in Iran.
3: No, just uh, to Marianne's uh, point, it's uh, true. Uh, It it was a catastrophic economic decision in in 2003 to open all borders uh, and open Iraq that has been a closed economy for decades to uh, international uh, competition uh, and the fact that it became a cash uh, economy that the, uh, uh, the leadership, Iraqi leadership, then wanted to create a kind of uh, uh, middle class and it became a very consumerist uh, society where, uh, uh, where uh, oil is soil sold in the world market uh, uh, in order to buy imported goods, which is a, uh, such a waste of uh, resources. Iraq is one of the few... Uh, Um, uh, countries in the Middle East that have enough uh, sweet water, it can uh, uh, grow its own tomatoes and vegetables, it can eat its own uh, meat, but it doesn't take um, that uh, opportunity, so that point is is true, and it's still uh, so, unfortunately.
1: And of, and it's interesting, because part of the reason why it ended up being that is because the commercial code was written by young operatives of the Republican Party that were brought into Baghdad after 2003.
3: And he was 23 years old. Yes.
1: Sometimes youth is not a good thing. Mm.
5: Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Omar Sheikhmus. Welcome, Renat, to Stockholm, by the way. We'll talk later on. Uh, I have two observations. I mean, one of the two aspects that has led to the weakening of the Iraq state and the solution of the central powers in Iraq, in my opinion, is uh, there are historical factors. Uh, not only the legacy of the founding of the state of Iraq uh, by granting the power to the Sunni Arab minority, uh, but uh, you had um, eight years of uh, war with Iran. You had the first Gulf War, you had sanctions period, you had the second Gulf War. This weakened the state of Iraq quite a lot. And and the second thing is that uh, external intervention. Uh, We have, you have a massive external intervention that has been taking place in Iraq with the, starting from the export of terrorists from Syria after 2003. Uh, intervention by the Turks, by the Iranians, by the Saudis, and then the burden of the sanctions of, of repayment of of uh, 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 monies to Kuwait until now—that's quite a burden. You know, Iraq was uh, in a very uh, in a state of dissolution before two thousand three, and then uh, I've met a lot of Iraqi leaders, as you know. And they blame Paul Bremer. Uh, They say that uh, we were thinking of establishing a unitary state, and he came with this question of uh, a Lebanon style of power sharing and proportional representation that has more or less destroyed the unitary state in Iraq. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Uh, my name is Peter Hamager and I work at the Swedish Defense Research Institute, I've been previously at this institute. Um, you mentioned uh, the airstrikes in the beginning against the Hashde. And uh, one can observe that uh, for the time being, uh, Netanyahu is using airstrikes both against Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. And I know that those have arose huge emotions in Iraq. I know that some who have been considered heroes against the fight against Daesh have also been killed in those airstrikes. For the Israelis, of course, the victims were presumably Iranian uh, uh, allies. But how do you think that the Iraqi government should handle the issue when it comes to balancing between the US and Iran? And uh, what are they actually doing in this case?
1: And we are recording this, so we can send it to them.
2: Um. Yeah. I mean, Ahmad is someone who knows very well uh, the developments in Iraq and Syria uh, since 2003 and what was happening before. Uh, so I completely agree that external intervention is has been a problem and is still a problem to this very date. I mean, what the Americans and Europeans are doing. Uh, in sort of the ISIS areas, the, the the deals between the PYD and the Iraqi government for who can kill quicker and all—I mean, there's still a lot of that side and this political side uh, that, that remains problematic. But on the Israeli airstrikes, well, first of all, uh, no one is no one is 100% sure where they're coming from. But Netanyahu has claimed claimed them, as it were, uh, as, as as Israeli strikes. And it's, it would be the first kind of Israel striking Iraq for a while, which is a huge problem for the, f- the formal leadership, let's say. And as I mentioned, I think the biggest issue for the formal leadership is that of, of how, if they're unable to stop these airstrikes, they won't. They, they, their power base will be tested. And by power base, it's not not just Iran, but some of the Hashid leaders. Because Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, who is, as I mentioned, the head of the Hashid, de facto, is not going to he 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 cannot have his depots and his men and and his economics finances continue to be attacked, and so the formal leadership sort of of Iraq the president the prime minister speaker, you know what was what was indicative was the fact that they met imagine this the president prime minister speaker met, and they came up with recommendations, right, not a law not a l- ruling but recommendations of what should be done which I think shows kind of how binding their their authority is. Um, But nonetheless, what they do have, which is important, is they have the ear of both sides. uh, And so they could act as sort of facilitate communications. Um, Yeah.
1: What did they recommend? That's genius. Um, Anyone else? Yes. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Talab Subah, I'm the project manager for Iraq at the FA. Uh, one question or one observation I made, or uh, during your speech, one could argue that um, the cross sectarian uh, cooperation now between the political parties or political blocs it's a rather cunning way to absorb the the, uh, the anger that demonstrators showed uh, in 2015, 16, and 18. And actually, nothing has changed. Probably the faces have changed, but politics is still run behind doors. And uh, the result of the uh, latest elections is rather a very weak uh, government.
6: I'd like to hear your comments on that, Bernard. Now my name is Thomas. I've been working uh, uh, for the EUAM in uh, Baghdad for the last two years. So, so I have some reflections on, on the institutional capacity since I've been embedded in the Ministry of Interior. But what I'm thinking about is now is uh, foreign intervention, but in the more positive way, this one, that um, we've been talking about the last two years, I would say, to put some pressure on the Iraqi government when it comes to Working with corruption, working with institutional reform, being aware on the national security strategy, for example. Um, but um, we feel kind of futile in 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 this attempt. And and now we're talking about putting some pressure on the Iraqis. But that pressure, and we've been working together with the Americans, for example, and, and they are also wanting to put some pressure when it comes to many of the projects. But when it, it sort of stops when we, when we finish the talk because we don't have the tools to put the pressure on because we are so afraid. This is my, my own assumption. We are so afraid to lose the arena to somebody else because the whole international society is actually fighting to have a place at the table at the time and pouring in money. So it feels like we are sort of, um, we are sort of killing them with our money and our love at the moment your reflections
2: about that. So, on the the question of, you know, weak government, uh, yeah, I mean, very clearly, the, the Prime Minister seems to try to appease all sides to bring back this idea of Mahasasa. But I think it's important, if you look at the protests and the protest movement. They're they're not against a single party or a single group or an individual. They're against what muhasasa. That's the word. They say we are against muhasasa. Muhasa is just the quota sharing system. But it shows that the protests are anti-systemic. That it's not it's not enough to change one leader with another leader. That's very clear by the, the you know, because they're not saying we're against a da'wah party or that we're against Badr or that we're against they're against the entire system that was brought in by in 2003. And so I think that that's important to note. I think that Iraqis have realized that even if you have technocratic ministers or people, officials that say nice things, power is done, as you say, behind closed doors. The judiciary is very weak, which I think is a big problem. So you don't really have legal rulings. So when there's a legal question like which who is the largest bloc, the Iraqi parliament doesn't know which the largest bloc is. This is a. I mean, it's not just a mathematics question. There could there, and they went to the courts, and the courts decided they didn't want to get involved. Right? So they brought, they brought it back to the, This is a country with a parliament and no no judiciary. So I mean, and, and the Iraqis see this and they say, what is this, Maskhara? Right? So so this is. I mean, these are big challenges. Um, and and you know, you have these new technocrats come. Some of them from abroad, some of them from there, they say nice things, but they can't really I don't think there's a lot of faith in this type of technocrat. I think what they need is more of a charismatic leader who can sort of change the direction of the system rather than the parties. Oh yeah, it's a very yeah, it's a very good it's a very good point. I think the other issue that I've seen, I mean it's it's a very good point because often the, the recommendations that we have are, apply more leverage and find trade-offs right um and obviously if, if international actors have other agendas if there's other reasons for being in Iraq um, then that complicates the sort of let's try and fix it and and the other problem is of course short-sightedness so in the in 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 response to what is a very immediate disaster whether it's security or some kind of issue there's a policy that put in that could have Longer term ramifications, but you need to do it now. It's a stopgap. So, how do we better bring the long term and the short term together? Um, You know, things like legal reform is pivotal. Um, And you cannot have anti corruption without a judiciary that isn't afraid to give a ruling.
3: Just a short uh, comment on uh, Omar Sheikh Moos' uh, reflection. Yeah, yeah. I found it also uh, in 2003, this uh, I concept of power sharing was quite an important uh, uh, rhetoric. And uh, I think, uh, I, rem- I don't remember the academic, but it was very popular at that time. And now looking back uh, on this concept of power sharing, it's... Uh, it's um, futile unless you know on what principles uh, you uh, will build power on uh, and uh, uh, build uh, the state on. And this refers back to my point earlier. the Iraqi leadership and the international community overstepped that. They didn't think about principles. And you see that... Uh, so you can have not e- neither have uh, right legal ruling unless you know what principles uh, you will govern on. And the Iraqi constitution is a reflection uh, on that. On the one hand, in the second paragra- uh, article in the constitution, uh, it mentioned Islam and democracy, and neither should. Uh, and it's it sort of creates these uh, legal uh, gray ho- um, holes regarding the status of the woman. Is the same legal uh, uh, gray areas uh, on the one hand, uh, Iraqi constitution. Um, promotes uh, uh, gender equality. On the other hand, it says that uh, all uh, groups shall be free to belong to their sect, uh, which opens up a a religious uh, legislation. And as long as you have so many different uh, uh, ideas and you don't know what uh, principle, it's hard uh, to uh, move uh, forward.
1: Well, um Allow me one short comment on that. I think what we sometimes tend to forget, especially when we are dealing with uh, state building, which in the Iraqi case was because the state had already withered almost away because of the years of sanction and then the war, and the debathification, of course, is that people tend to think of constitutions either as a blueprint or as a document of aspiration. If you go back to the European experience of the World War I, you find the same thing. All these new states in Eastern Europe got fantastic constitutions with all kinds of rights. The problem is that when it becomes too aspirational, it does not reflect the political realities. And if it doesn't reflect the political realities, it's just a piece of paper. So I think the problem usually when you are dealing with that kind of situation is that on one hand, it has to reflect the actual groups who are sitting down writing the document. And at the same time, you would prefer that they go beyond and that they progress into something that they are not yet at that point. And therefore, you will get a document that contains all the different contradictions that the country is actually in. And then depending on what you do with the politics, you can either build on the aspirational bits or you just fall back on the crass reflection of the power relations of the moment. very much for today uh, and why don't we give a warm applause to our panelists.
0: Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UISweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.